Morning, church. Morning. It was a really awesome week this week. Uh, something really exciting I hadn't ever been a witness to before was to see the events of the great giveaway, uh, which was really neat. There was an army, uh, literally almost like an army of volunteers that uh, descended upon the church early in the week, and they stayed throughout the week helping to set up tables in the gymnasium, and there was this big tent that came and was set up, and all the tables were set up out there, and and then, of course, the event on Thursday night, we had folks who were here to, to minister to those who came. We had a prayer team that was here, and so people who came and, and needed or wanted prayer could be prayed for. And what an exciting event, uh, a really neat thing. And I just want to thank, I know Pastor Jim already was up here to do it, but I want to affirm that and just thank again all of the volunteers who gave time, uh, all of those of you who donated materials and goods. Uh, just a wonderful event for the community and an outstanding to be part of. And so thank you for all that participated in that in one way or another. One of the realities about coaching athletics is that sometimes people want to give you credit for things that maybe you didn't do. Uh, a few years ago, I had a, a, the pleasure and the opportunity to coach a phenomenal athlete. He was absolutely incredible. He was a great hurdler. And uh, all throughout the season, he was having so much success. I mean, he would win these hurdle races by two seconds. I mean, and you think for 100 meters, winning by two seconds is pretty significant. And he was just outstanding. And he, he kept having so much success. We would go to these tournaments and these different places, and, and people would watch, and he would win. Every, he won everything that season, won everything, all the way up to states. And I remember when I got to States, I had a discussion uh, with a gentleman uh, right before the race. It was the finals of the state track meet. And it was right before the race, and I was up in the bleachers, and I was talking to a gentleman, and he was, he was really trying to, to kind of honor and, and build me up. And, and finally, I was like, you know, I really had very little to do with this. You know, really, he, he did all the work. It wasn't me running the 400-meter repeats in the middle of the week and trying to do all the other things uh, that, to have the great times that he did. He put the time in. He put the effort in. Really, you need to give him uh, the credit for, for what he's accomplished here. And it turned out that year, uh, in particular, he was second in the state in the 110-meter high hurdles and ended up uh, sixth in the state in the 300-meter high hurdles. So he had a pretty good season. But it's, it's important for us to make sure that we're giving others the proper credit that they're due and not taking the credit upon ourselves when it's not due to us. And in our text today, as we go into the final section of John chapter 3, uh, we're going to see uh, an example of this in the testimony uh, of John the Baptist as we enter our text this morning. We're coming to the conclusion of a section of John that started way back at the beginning of John chapter 2 and now wraps itself up in the conclusion of our text today. And, and D.A. Carson, I was reading from him this week, uh, it was really interesting because he pointed out that at the end of this passage, really what the Gospel writer as John has done is he's shown us how Jesus is far superior than Judaism. And, and D.A. Carson observes this. He says in John chapter 2, 1 to 11, in Jesus' first miracle of the transforming of the water to wine, we see that his ability to purify was superior to, Juda to Judaism. We see in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25, when Jesus cleanses the temple, that his body is superior to the body of the temple. 
We see in John chapter 3 when he interacts with Nicodemus in verses 1 to 21 that the scope of his people, the world, is superior than, than just what Judaism's scope was. We also see that his ability to save was superior than the law's ability. And then today, in John chapter 3, 22 to 36, uh, D.A. Carson sees that we're going to find that his work, Jesus' work, was superior to the work of John the Baptist. So I think it's very interesting. We can come to the conclusion at the end of John chapter 3 that all of Jesus, as we conclude, all of Jesus was much more superior to and far greater than all of Judaism. And so as we go into our text this morning, we're going to witness Jesus' increasing ministry. We're going to see John's decreasing ministry. And overall, we're going to witness the superiority of Jesus over John. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come to your word with great anticipation this morning, as we always do. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would be able to lay aside all the distractions that are in our lives and that sometimes hinder us and take our focus off of you. And Father, that this morning we'd be able to solely fix our gaze upon you and who you are. Lord, we trust in the power of your spirit. We trust in the power of your word that you might use it to change our lives and help us to grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our goal today, friends, is this. Our goal today, as we open the book of John, is to see Jesus as superior to anything else in our lives, recognizing that all that we have, all that we are, and all that we ever will become comes from Him, belongs to Him, and is owed to Him, so that He might receive the glory that He is due from the testimony of our lives. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 22 to 24 to begin of John chapter 3, the increasing ministry of Jesus. After this, after his interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Selim because water there was plentiful. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So as we come to verse 22 of John chapter 3, we see that the ministry of Jesus is increasing. It's growing. And he's moving and he's baptizing along the Jordan River uh, in the Judean countryside. And we want to take a look at that again. And again, we have our raisin rope peanut up here. And I'm going to try to make it work so we can see. So let's take a look. Oh, it works. There's the raisin. So there's our raisin up there, the Sea of Galilee. And we come down. This is the Jordan River. All right. And here's our, this is our rope, right? And then here's the peanut, raisin rope peanut. All right. And so they're baptizing here. You can see in this area of Anon near Salim. And, and it's, a, it's an important location because it was about 150 miles between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. You had 150 miles by foot. And not every area of the river was suitable for baptism. Now, I've had the opportunity to baptize uh, folks in a creek before, uh, in a river. And I, and I have to tell you that when the, when the creek bed is low, you, there's a concern, 
There's a concern that when you take them under, you might bump their head on something because the water's so low. There's also a concern that the water might not be low enough to get them all the way under. And then you have to wonder, did it count? No, I'm just kidding. It, 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 counted. it counted. It counted. It counted. So, but, but there's that concern when the water's low. We had this little creek bed down at the bottom of Wesley Road. We'd take folks to be baptized. But unfortunately, the water wasn't always deep enough. So we'd have to, every once in a while, say, hey, we're going to have to come back and do this again. Now, sometimes when the rain had been really bad, I remember one time we did a baptism in April. And, and, and it, it was, the water was really flowing. And not only was it flowing, but it was freezing cold all right and so when the water's too deep and it's flowing too fast there's the concern that you might lose them when you dip them <laughs> under the water you know you really got to hold on extra tight as you're bringing them back up and so this this really it was a challenging situation and you know we think about the baptism ministry of Jesus and John and 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 there were some realities that made it difficult along the Jordan River and they really needed to find the right location to do their ministry and so Jesus had found a great location along the river to baptize, and John, he had found a great location along the river to baptize. And the question is, why were they doing this? Why, why were they baptizing? It's not something that's common in the Old Testament. It's not something we read a lot about. And, and actually, somebody from the congregation, I don't remember who, had that question for me a few weeks ago, and I think it's an interesting question. Why were Jesus and John baptizing? And, and John gives us answer to the reason. Uh, it, it actually comes right in the book of Matthew. It says this in Matthew chapter 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance. For repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Paul, in the book of Acts, Paul also describes the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. He, and he says this, he says, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And so John's baptism, it was really a baptism of cleansing, of, of repentance, of preparation for the coming of the king. And John's ministry, though it was effective and it was serving a significant purpose for a time, it, it truly was coming to a conclusion as he would soon be put in prison. Jesus' earthly ministry had been formally initiated following his own baptism and was in its early stages. And so Jesus and John had both set up shop along this uh, location that was effective for their ministries and people were coming to take part in their ministry. And what we see in this text Again, we find mostly a lot throughout the uh, chapter of John 3 is there's division. Jesus and his disciples, and we have John and his disciples. And while Jesus' ministry was increasing and was plentiful, the ministry of John the Baptist was drying up and even decreasing in number. And as so often we find in ministry, decreasing numbers are usually a cause for alarm. Take a look down at verses 25 to 27 of John chapter 3 and look at the response um, that John has when they're witnessing the decreasing numbers in his ministry. Starting in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, look. He is baptizing, and all 
are going to Him. So this discussion in the beginning of this section really over purification, it should take our minds back to the cleansing, uh, to the water and the wine and the stone pots and the cleansing of the temple. This Jewish concept of purification was consistently being infringed upon by the actions of Jesus. And John, he had gathered quite a following. Many had come to experience his baptism of repentance. And, and, and even as his, his disciples approach him, they refer to him in rabbi. And it, it really was a term to show that they had made some commitment to John. This wasn't just a, a loose following. When you called somebody a rabbi, it, it usually meant that you had a commitment to them. And so there was some commitment here in this title and this designation. But I think it's interesting that the problem doesn't appear to be related to the discussion on purification. Do you notice that? So you have this discussion on purification that goes on uh, in the text, but the problem that they're really wanting to address doesn't seem to, to really involve that. Sometimes we say this is truly not about that. Jesus was baptizing, John was baptizing, and perhaps the discussion surrounded uh, whose baptism was more effective. So if I go and I get baptized by John over here in this part of the river, is that effective enough? Or then do I have to also go and get baptized by Jesus? How many baptisms does a person need? How many cleansings does a person need? How many times does a person need to be purified? Perhaps what we also see here, friends, are some feelings of jealousy, right? Look, look this guy that you talked about, John, everyone's going to him now. So there's some envy, maybe some fear over what the popularity of Jesus and his disciples' baptisms uh, might mean for John's future ministry. Regardless of the question and the discussion, which we're not given much clarity on here in, in verse 26, Chicken Little makes an appearance. Now, some of you remember Chicken Little, right? Does anybody remember Chicken Little in here? When I was little, my mom, they, she would read the story of Chicken Little to me. Right? And Chicken's, Chicken Little's problem was that he was hit in the head by an apple, right? And when he was hit in the head by an apple, at least this is the way I was told the story. I know it changes over the years. Maybe it was a pear or an orange in, in your story. If you're from Florida, it could have been an orange. I don't know. But he's hit in the head by an apple. And what does he do? He goes off the deep end. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Oh, everything's terrible. Everything's dramatic. It's coming to an end. And, and a very similar kind of idea here in verse 26. John, all, they're all going to Jesus. They're all going to him. Now, I want you to imagine with me the, the, the tone of the discussion. One of John's disciples comes to John. John, we might as well close up shop. We're going out of business. Everyone is now going to the person that you all told them about. We're no longer relevant. I think we're losing our influence. Our baptism doesn't seem to be good enough. Maybe, John, maybe it would be better if we turned the lights down during our baptisms. That might be better. They might be more effective if we turn the lights down. Or maybe I see the baptisms going on down here. They have fog machines. Maybe we could turn some fog machines on and baptize with fog behind us, and that would bring more people to be baptized. And you know... You know what happened, John, the other day? Uh, I just so happened to get on my phone and I recognized that Jesus' baptisms are now trending on Twitter. Now, 
I don't know what we have to do, John, to keep up here, but this doesn't make sense. And when I sat down to do my devotions at the table, uh, I had my phone. And maybe John Paul said, why did you have your phone while you were doing your devotions? Doesn't seem to make much sense. But what came across my feed, this beautiful Instagram picture of Jesus baptizing and the sun's coming up behind him. And, and John, we just can't keep up. I think we can't compete. The sky is falling. Our, our baptism ministry is doomed. We should cut our losses now and just give up, right? It's so easy sometimes for us to fall into this same trap, jealousy and envy over the success of others. And, and in this moment, John's disciples, they're overblowing, they're exaggerating, they're hyping up the problem in order to elicit some kind of particular response from John. Do something about this, John. You know, our baptisms, they're losing influence. Everybody's going to Jesus. And John's answer in verses 27 to 30 shows us the fullness of his wisdom. It also shows us the bold and quiet confidence that he knew that he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. Look down at verses 27 to 30 of your text. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John, he, he knew his role. He knew what he had been called to. He was confident and comfortable in the ministry that Jesus had given him. John knew that he had been called to a specific few. Jesus had been called and, been, and was calling his sheep throughout the world. And his sheep were hearing his voice. And they were responding. And John proclaims a truth here in verse 27 that's as relevant and profound to us today as it was all the way back then. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to them from heaven. Friends, everything we have, we have because God has given it to us. Everything we have. The ministries we have in the church, uh, the, the people who are here at Calvary Monument, the people who are at churches down the road ministering and, and worshiping together, they are where they are because that's where God has them. And the ministry we have is what we have because it's what God has given to us for this time. And, and it's interesting, if, if God increases the ministry, it increases because he's desired for it to do so, right? And so John is taking his disciples' misaligned focus and he's placing it back in a proper perspective. And really, in correcting his disciple here, he's giving us a model of what true discipleship looks like. John is saying, friend, your understanding is misaligned. Let me help you redirect your thinking and put your focus back in proper perspective. You know, it can get wearisome, friends. And I'm sure you felt it chasing after the winds of change in our culture. Isn't it wearisome? I mean, I just get burdened. I can't keep up. I mean, I just know now, and I think our children know now, we just aren't going to have the newest, nicest, bestest, brightest things. It's just the way it's going to be. 
you know? And, and man, it's so easy for us to get thrown off and, and, and maybe get clipped and start chasing after things because we're fearing that we may be losing our relevance or we're fearing that somehow we're getting passed up, you know, somehow someone's getting one over on us. I don't know, it happens, it manifests itself in our personal lives. It manifests itself in our neighborhoods, could be in our work life. But friends, it happens in our church as well. It happens in our church. And, and I just believe if we worried less about keeping up and more about staying focused on Jesus, we'd all be much better off, much better off. Recognizing that all that we have, all that we receive comes from him. It's interesting. Jesus had the ministry he had because it was given to him by God. And John had the ministry he had because it was given to him by God. And the physical numbers are not always an accurate representation of the breadth, depth, and overall strength of a ministry. That's just a reality, friends. The numbers are not always the most accurate reflection of what's really happening. And here's something for us to consider as a church. Here's John the Baptist being faithful to what God had called him to do, being faithful to what God had commanded to be baptizing. That's what he was doing. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do, exactly where God wanted him to be doing it. And his numbers were decreasing. His numbers were not increasing. They were decreasing. And guess what? He wasn't fearful. He wasn't scared by that. In fact, it's the opposite. He was joyful. He was joyful. Amazing. In verse 28, he continues to redirect the thinking of his disciples, reminding them that he is not the Christ. Look, I don't know who you think I am, but I am not Jesus. And, and he further illustrates this by giving the illustration of a best man in the wedding. Now, now I had a wedding uh, 15 or so years ago. We had a wedding. And, and I had a best man. He was a really, really good friend of mine. He lives out in Seattle now. And, and could you imagine if on my wedding day uh, at the front, everyone was celebrating him? It's not the way it's supposed to be, right? It's, it's not the role of the best man. That's not their, their job. It's not the way they function. And back then, even more so, the best man uh, back in, in the Jewish history, he played such a, a greater role than our best man does today. It's like our best man today. He's the one that just kind of gives us the kick to get up there. Like, come on, you got to get up there. You know, like, let's go, get going. You got to get up there. But back then, the best man, he coordinated, he planned, he prepared for the wedding, and, and would receive little to no recognition at all for it. It was all about the groom and his bride. And the joy of the best man became complete upon hearing the groom's voice because he knows that the proper person is about to receive the glory that is due to him. The best man is never celebrated at a wedding. And John the Baptist was overjoyed because the one who deserved the glory, the one who deserved the credit, he was getting all the credit. He was getting all the glory and his ministry was growing. And in this context, it makes no sense for the bride to come down, down the aisle and to join together with the best man. Doesn't make any sense. The bride must come and must go to her groom. Jesus was on earth. 
His earthly ministry has started and the bride was responding appropriately. And that made John's joy complete. His joy was full. And his two phrases, really one of them happened earlier uh, in John chapter 1 we saw, but the two phrases that John is most recognized for, they're very closely related. What's the first phrase? The first phrase in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? We all know that that's one of John's famous verses. Well, his second probably most famous is right in this text. He must increase, I must decrease. And they're very closely related to each other. Both those phrases are taking the focus off of John and directing and pointing the focus to Jesus. And friends, that, that should be the goal of all of our lives, right? That should be the goal of our church. It shouldn't be uh, about look at us and, and look at our ministries or, or, or look at me and, and look at my life. It should all be look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. And if there's anything good that comes from us, if there's anything good that he produces in our lives, that's him. That's on him. He's doing it. He's doing the work. We're in nothing without Jesus. He's given us everything in our lives that should look valuable to people on the outside. And we should be able to say, if you see something in my life that's worth imitating, don't give me glory for it. Look to Jesus. Because there's nothing in my being apart from Jesus, that's useful for anyone. Nothing. And this phrase, he must increase and I must decrease, it's also indicative of John's true servant heart. John the Baptist was a servant. God called John because this was the nature that he had given John. John wanted no glory for himself. He wanted all the glory to go to God. He truly was a servant. And in the next five verses, friends, we see a display of amazing clarity that the aim of John the Baptist's life was to elevate the person and the ministry of Jesus above his own. We come to verses 31 to 36, and really, in this concluding, I call this the epilogue of John the Baptist's life message. If he had to leave one resounding statement for his disciples, it's his last words that we have from him in the Gospel of John. One last testimony regarding Jesus and who he is and how wonderful he is. This is it. The superiority of Jesus. Here are all the ways that Jesus is greater than me. This is John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. Everything that John is saying in these last five verses of John chapter 3 is directing his followers, is pointing their attention, uh, 
those who were close enough to hear the reality of the Messiah who John wanted them so desperately to know about. And in these last five verses, John really identifies for us at least six ways that Jesus is superior to him. There's at least six ways here. And the first is this. In verse 31, Jesus came from a superior location. Right? John was of the earth. He, he belonged to the earth. His origins were different than Jesus. He had, he had just a physical beginning and would, would die on the earth as a man. And, and if he had a relationship with Jesus, we knew he would be in heaven with God, but he was different. He came from a different location. Jesus came from heaven. In John chapter 3, verse 13, when Jesus is talking about Nicodemus, you remember he talks about himself as one who both ascended and descended from heaven. And because of this reality, Jesus had a superior perspective than John. And in verses 32 and verse 33, John the Baptist recognizes this. What, what Jesus saw, he saw from a heavenly perspective. Jesus sees from a different perspective than we do, friends, because he's from a different place than we are. John had only seen from an earthly view. Look back at verse 33. He who sees God and, and witnesses his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. The result of those who do receive his testimony, the stamp of their lives, is God is true. John, John Piper says it this way, quote, eternity divides at Jesus, end quote. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. Listen to what it says about this perspective. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so within this text, there's two divisions related to this perspective. There are those without the Son, those without Jesus who do not have life living, though physically they're not alive. They live in darkness. And, and we've already seen in John chapter 1, 2, and 3 the division uh, of darkness and light and how darkness and death are paired together. But then we also have those who are with the Son, who have life. And we saw how light and life travel together in the Gospel of John. And remember the theme. Remember why we're studying the Gospel in the first place. These things are written so that you might believe and have life in His name. Though, though we may see dimly today, friends, from our earthly perspectives, one day we will see completely. And Jesus increases our ability to see. 
And though John had an earthly perspective and we have an earthly perspective, Jesus still desires to teach us through his spirit and show us his glory through the power of his word. That's why we read the Bible, friends. I mean, the Bible is so powerful. And, and, and people come and they say, hey, can, can you give me something inspirational to read? Somebody said that to me the other day. I said, the Bible? <laughs> read the Bible. Yeah, well, I, 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 I've read the Bible. I'm like, yeah, well, keep reading it. There's a lot of inspiration in there. There's a lot of really good stuff. And you can read it over and over again. And God uses his word to teach us, to instruct us, to give us proper perspective on the things that are going on here on earth. And it's so easy to lose our perspective. But his perspective's superior. And so when we have questions about what's happening here on earth, what's going on, why is all this stuff happening? I don't want to go to a self-help book, and I don't really want to go to a bunch of other books. Sometimes they're helpful, but really I think we got to go to the Word. We have to go to the Word, friends. It's the power of the Word that leads us into the next way that Jesus is more superior than John. And that is this, Jesus spoke with superior authority. In verse 34, what Jesus says, he utters or it comes from God. John spoke his own words. We speak our own words. But Jesus spoke the words of the Father. Listen to, uh, this is John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50. Probably in three or four years we'll get here. So I'll just give you a preview now. John chapter 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus' words were true and of the highest possible authority because they were the words that God had given him to say. And that's why John chapter 1 is so incredible. In the beginning was the Word. And why is the Word trustworthy? Because He has been sent from God, and He was with God, and He is God. And so if the Word is true, then God is true. And it should be incredibly hopeful to us. Jesus, was, He was glorifying the Father while on earth by speaking His words to the people that God had given Him. It was a diverse people from diverse perspectives. And it took Jesus many different places throughout his physical ministry on earth. And it was a ministry that required a special measure of the Spirit in order to accomplish it. And that leads us to the fourth way that John, that Jesus is superior to John. Jesus was given a superior measure of the Spirit. Now, now you have to understand from the Jewish perspective, from, from John's perspective, what John would have understood about the Spirit is that the Spirit was given and then taken. Because from the Old Testament perspective, there were many times when the Spirit would come upon someone to do something incredible for ministry, and then he would leave. So we see this with Joshua in the book of Numbers. We see this uh, a lot of times in the book of Judges, my favorite Old Testament book. Othniel, Gideon, Samson, it talks about the Spirit of God coming and going from these people. The kings, the Spirit of God came upon Saul, but then Saul was disobedient. The Spirit of God left him. If you remember David, the Spirit of God came upon David. Then when David sinned with Bathsheba, what did he ask? Take not your Holy Spirit from me, right? And so the Jewish understanding of the Spirit that he came
came and he went. He came and he went. But John saw something different with Jesus. He recognized something different with Jesus at his baptism. And this is what John had known. However, what John had seen was different. Because at Jesus' baptism, John witnessed the Spirit coming upon him and it did not leave. The measure... Uh, this measure of the Spirit was granted to Jesus partly due to the expansive nature of His ministry on earth. God had given Him a great task. He had called Him to a great thing, ultimately having to become obedient to a terrible, terrible death. And that measure of the Spirit was necessary for that. And that leads us to the fifth way that Jesus was superior to John. Jesus was superior to John because he received a superior scope of ministry. All things, in verse 35, all things were given into Jesus' hands. That's not how John the Baptist's ministry was. He didn't have all things. Jesus had all things given into his hand. John had a particular ministry. Jesus was given a ministry to carry out that had the redemption of humanity wrapped up in it. He holds all things together. Could you imagine your life in better hands than in the hands of Jesus? Friends, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine my, better, my life in any better place than in the hands of Jesus. Listen to this. This is Colossians chapter 1. So affirming to this truth. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation... For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, all things. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence in all of our ministries, in our lives, in anything we might do here on earth. He must have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, some days... I, I can't even feel like I can hold everything going on in my life together. You ever feel that way? Now, I don't know. I mean, I, there are days I really feel that way. You have a busy schedule, a calendar, a lot of things going on in your lives. I'm sure many of you sit out here and you have stresses that go on every single day. And, and there are many days that you feel that you can't hold it all together. It's too much for you to do. And isn't it wonderful to know that in those days all we have to do is lean back on this truth that He has got it for us. He's got it. He can do it. When we can't hold it together, He can hold it together. All of our busyness, all the turmoil, all the conflict, the disappointment. Can we trust, friends, that He's holding us through it? And do we believe that He's powerful enough to do so? All things were given into His hand. All things. Take a look at the final verse of our text this morning. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The sixth and final way 
we see the superiority of Jesus over John this morning is that Jesus had superior power. He had superior power. Jesus had the power to both grant eternal life and to remove the wrath of God from mankind. And and there's this interesting word that we use when we describe this in the church. It's kind of like a silly word because we hear it when we're little. Nobody knows what it means and we kind of laugh about it every time it comes up. But it's a really important word. It kind of is hard to say. Propitiation. You ever hear that word before, right? And, And it really is the term that talks about the action of Jesus turning the wrath of God from humanity because he took it on himself for us. He bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. Only Jesus had the power to do that. John the Baptist didn't have that power. He couldn't do that for us. He wasn't able to grant eternal life. But Jesus was because he was superior in power. He could do it. So the question, as we wrap up this morning that we ask at the end of all of our messages is how should our lives look in light of these realities? And you know what? To take you back to the, the story of Chicken Little, right? I know it's kind of a funny story, but Chicken Little, he, he kind of lost his focus, didn't he? Because if you remember, now they, they added a lot of these Grimm Brothers stories to take the, the you know, tough stuff out of them today, so they're all kind of nice and happy stories. But, you know, the reality was he got into the woods, Right? In the real story. And what happened to him when he got into the woods? Anybody know the, 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 the real story? The fox ate him. He ate all of them. His, he was distracted. His focus, friends, was on the wrong thing. And, and he was missing the real problem that was among them from the very beginning. Sin. Satan was lurking. And the hysteria of an apple falling from the tree and hitting him on his head caused him to take his eyes off of what really mattered, and he was led into the forest, into his doom, right? And so, friends, it's important that we keep our focus on Jesus. It's a testimony of John the Baptist's life. It's everything that he was about. Stay focused on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Behold the Lamb, and as you behold Him, He must increase, and you must decrease. As our team comes this morning to lead us in another song before we dismiss today, we could ask ourselves the question, is the resounding testimony of our lives that he must increase and I must decrease? In other words, when we're struggling with fear and doubt, are the actions of our lives shouting that he must increase? When we're recognizing our own inadequacy, are the actions of our lives saying that he must increase? As we look ahead into the unknown and sometimes have fear and trepidation, are the actions of our lives saying that He must increase? At our job sites when we face frustration and we have difficult relationships and there's challenges, are the actions of our lives saying He must increase? In our homes as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, friends and neighbors, are the actions of our lives in our homes shouting, He must increase? At the news of a difficult diagnosis, our actions shouting, he must increase. And until we take our final breath on earth, are the actions of our lives, is the testimony of our lives shouting, he must increase. So that when people see us, they are seeing Jesus who is changing us from the inside. And God is receiving the glory 
that he is due for the testimony of a transformed life.